0: You are listening to a conservative review production. Trust, but verify. You're listening to the conservative conscience.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, and we are doing something a little unusual, recording this week on a Monday. I'm sorry, to some of you, you might have been looking for a Thursday-Friday podcast. We usually post it on Friday, but I figured you'd heard enough of me, three hours of Steve Days. I'm sure you all saw that online, and I'm you know thankful for all the comments and feedback. But uh, today, I felt it was important to just frame this new week Um You know, this is a big week ahead again, another big election week Tuesday night. In addition to the path forward on this election season, I'd also like to discuss the Supreme Court, a lot of important things going on with Obama Supreme Court nominee, the judiciary in general, as you know, big, uh, big issue for me with my upcoming book. And just, you know, with that said, a couple of in-house notes here, Uh, you go to Amazon.com Stolen Sovereignty, my new book, it is out for pre-order, so you could order it online now. Good deal, less than 20 bucks, and this will be a thick book. There will be a lot there. Um, religious liberty, marriage, immigration, the court system, what we can do about all those issues, it's all there. Really excited about the pre-release. Um, the release will be July. In addition, as always, LevinTV.com. you got to subscribe to Mark Levin's new TV show. I mean, you know, Mark is uh it's things are getting getting exciting. He is offering a one-on-one debate on his new TV show between Trump and Cruz. We'll see if they uh take take him up on the offer, but LevinTV.com it's it's like no other TV show more informative and educational than you'll ever see anywhere else. It's even different than his radio show, different temperament, different narrative. Um I don't know how he has enough content for 4 hours a day. I certainly wouldn't, but uh it's it's worth your time. We're, you know, sign up now while while the deal is good. And uh, before we go on, I just want to bring in my co-host Joe Koss. Welcome back,
0: Joe. How you doing? Ready for another uh, big week on the trail? You know, in some ways,
1: I'm glad we didn't have another debate. It's just been so grueling. Tuesday primary, Saturday primary, then Thursday night debate. But you know, talk speaking about Mark Levin's offer, you know, a lot of people are saying, "Oh, we've heard enough debates," but. This is the problem. We really never had a debate. <laughs> you know, I understand we've had over a dozen of these things, but we really have not had a debate this season nope. because we had the big elephant in the room being Donald Trump and the 17 dwarfs. We didn't have a one-on-one debate that would be substantive in a way that we could vet from a conservative perspective who this front runner really is and it's not surprising that Donald Trump would want to sit on the ball, run out the clock, wouldn't want to debate, debate his most uh, uh you know able and and the smartest best debater in Ted Cruz. And this is why Mark is offering this this free airtime and and I hope they take him up on it.
0: Right. No, I agree. I, I f- feel kind of the same way that if we would have had another debate, it would have been more of the usual, more of the just whatever. But at the same time, now that the field is narrowed, it would have been nice to see the two. And I think that's a, a, a perfect, um, it's a perfect analogy of what's gone on this entire cycle. You've just, everything that you've wanted and everything that you've expected, we haven't gotten until it's, you know, a, a you know, day, late, dollar, short kind of thing. And- oh,
1: man, you're killing me. Day, late, dollar, short. That is and, – and and that's what I want to discuss with our listeners here, that everything going on, we're always a step behind. It is – you know, I spoke when I filled in uh, – I spoke about this w- with, uh, um, you know, Rachel when I filled in for, for Steve Dace. Luck, the luck that this man has gotten, the timing of everything, I mean being a step behind that – you know basically you have a situation where this man has gotten more free airtime than anyone in the history of presidential candidates. It's you know as you said from the onset when we did one of our earliest podcasts if you had Taylor Swift running just that alone <laughs> I mean she would be leading. There's no question. You have a cultural figure, all you do is talk about that person, they'll be leading. And in this case, a lot of the attention has been negative. A lot of people are turned off by him, but he does have about 40% because of the name id
0: yep
1: you get someone to run mano a mano against him they will defeat him there's no question about that but it's you know every every uh primary that we go on with a divided field it makes it harder and harder he be he accrues a bigger lead so even if you'd come from behind and win all the kind of latter states which we'll try to go over the map a little bit um it might be a you know a, 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 a dollar short here. It's it's everything is too late. This is the problem we've had. And then he's had the luck of having Kasich in at the right time, the early voting. So let's look at next week. You know, this is the first primary without Rubio in there. So hey, you know, maybe he maybe Cruz should have a chance. And Arizona and Utah are closed contests. They're they're not open to Democrats or independents. And by the way, you know. um our one of our colleagues, Steve Dace, has put out the numbers. Ted Cruz has won the vote by three points, even with the divided field. You know, certainly without it, he would have crushed Trump. But he he won in a plurality on contests that were uh, closed. But again, all these contests, they were open. They had early voting. And what I mean by early voting, you have a scenario where earlier on in the race with the divided field – more people were voting for Rubio and some of the other candidates. So I saw uh, some figures with the Arizona race. Arizona has early voting, had a lot of early voting as much as 55, 60% would have been before election day. And as many as 40,000 ballots would have been cast for other candidates that are no longer in the race. And again, the exit polling data shows that almost all of them would go to Cruz. So, From what I'm hearing, Cruz will clearly win election day voting, but it's unlikely that it could be by enough of a margin to overcome the early voting, which had Rubio and some others in there. And then also John Kasich. I mean, this man does not have a path to win a single other state, much less (laughs) get a plurality, get anywhere near a plurality. But he is campaigning in Utah to drag... Cruz down below 50%, because if Cruz gets 50%, he wins all 40 delegates, and he absolutely really needs that for his path going forward, especially if you assume that, uh, y- you know, Donald Trump wins the winner-take-all delegates in Arizona, and, and, you know, he's just in there to gum up the works, I mean, Joe, are we going to elect Donald Trump, you know, who is viewed as an outsider, ironically, because the vanity campaign of a man who was not talented enough to run in the Democrat field.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's the way that it looks. I I brought up something a few years ago during the last presidential race when I was talking about things. I was working for a Catholic organization, so you know, my my angle was a little bit different, but the question came up like why shouldn't more people be be behind Mitt Romney and we were supportive of him. But I said, it's just interesting that we in, in 2012, we're backing somebody who had experience and sort of wanted the government to work for them just in the, in the right way and and all these things where previous to that, we wanted someone who was for a smaller government, limited government, somebody who was a tried-and-true conservative with principles, somebody who could take the ideas in the high road to the Democrats and the progressives and battle them mano-a-mano. Mano. And yet again, we're in the same place. We've got Trump who's out there. And, and you know, we can discuss who and what he is, but like you just said with Kasich, he's a guy who's handing it to Trump more or less, and even if Kasich were to pull off some win or some strategic thing, it's just handing it right back to the establishment. I don't understand how there isn't more outrage on the right for what's happening not it's even with not even with trump i i get how some people are you know enamored with him because he talks the way that he talks what i can't understand is why there isn't outrage on the right with people like Kasich in in, in sort of all the games and tricks that have been played to this point
1: exactly this is a man and, and again this is a man who just came out and said and we're gonna hopefully get to this if we have time with the supreme court support he said he, he would not only consider meeting with Merrick Garland if he were in the Senate, he might consider nominating a guy like him himself. right? This is a man that, that obviously has no respect for the Second Amendment. And as you, you, know, you know, all these Democrat nominees are um, post-constitutionalists. And you know, he supports it. He supports amnesty. He supports all the Democrat agenda. But ironically, he, here's the tragic twist here, the irony. Kasich is doing relatively well, in other words when I say well, meaning having a pulse and registering enough to play spoiler, because he's never been asked tough questions, because no one knows about his record, because he was so irrelevant. Anyone in his position would have dropped out ages ago. He won nothing but his home state, which was never viewed as a... um, you know, a, a litmus test for success, especially when you're a sitting governor. Of course, you're going to win your home state. He has come in dead last or close to last in almost every other state, he has no path to winning another state. But, again, because he's irrelevant and no one wants to punch down, no one has exposed his record. So he gets to run on sanctimony. Hey, you know, are you sick of all these guys fighting with each other? I'm running a positive campaign. I'm above it all. Well, yeah, you're running a positive campaign because you don't need to contrast yourself and go negative on anyone. Because, you know, you don't have a need to meet that threshold to win. Your threshold is just like we spoke about last time, just to get two, three hundred delegates to make up that difference between Cruz and Trump and hand the nomination to Trump. So he hasn't been exposed, and you know, going forward. So here's the thing: Cruz has an opportunity and a challenge. You know, on the one hand, he has an opportunity, and that is, it's a two and a half man race. So he has finally kind of cleared the the field. Most of the contests headed forward are closed, and and you know, in the show notes, we're going to put up my spreadsheet for the best case. The, what I call the realistic best case scenario for Cruz going forward, how Cruz catches Trump and the delegates. So Cruz is about 270 delegates behind. It's a pretty big deficit. Unfortunately, Arizona is probably, well, no Tuesday night, but it's probably baked into the cake from the previous dynamic of divided field because of the early voting, was when the field was divided. But headed forward, you know, between most contests being. Pretty much closed in states that benefit Cruz. Um, he should have he should be able to take this going away. So he should win Utah. He should win. You know, next you have April first. And by the way, this is pretty eerie that after you you reach the crescendo of this campaign, it then it goes back the other way and slows down. It's slow pace now. You see, even the news cycle has been quieter. You know, so you have North Dakota. Cruz should win all those. You have Colorado and the rest of Wyoming. He should easily win those. The big race is Wisconsin. 42 delegates, winner take most by congressional district. That's April 5th. So we're going to have two more weeks until the next big contest. Um, you know, there's a marquee poll that came out. It wasn't a election matchup poll, but it was on the favorability of Donald Trump. And he had a net deficit of minus 31 among the famous Waukesha County, you know that is the the Milwaukee suburbs are the breadbasket of Republican politics in Wisconsin, and, and in some measures the most Republican suburbs. Maybe Dallas might be the only only uh you know runner up there, but the most Republican oriented suburbs in the entire nation. He is hated. Um, I mean he has like almost Democrat level unfaves in that part of the the um in that part of the state. So he has a very good chance of winning. I know the Cruz campaign thinks they're going to win Wisconsin, and I will say they have to win Wisconsin if they want to remain competitive and close the gap. Again, the challenge is Kasich because you have this dynamic where Trump is doing well in the rural areas, and he is doing better in the northwestern part of you La Crosse and even the Green Bay area in Wisconsin – but where most of the votes are in the cities, in the suburbs of Milwaukee and Madison, he's doing poorly. But if Kasich you know, siphons off some delegates, it will really gum up the works there. Then you have New York, Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland um, coming next. And that's not for another two, three weeks after that. And Pennsylvania. It then moves on to Indiana, Nebraska. Um, it, it gets very slow. And then finally you have the June 7th race. And, and, you know, out of those races, Cruz should easily win four out of five. California, Montana, New Mexico, South Dakota. I don't think there's a question. But, the you know, New Jersey, unfortunately, is an open contest. You would imagine, given the geography, given the dynamics there, Trump has that one. And therefore, Cruz has got to win as many of the 172 delegates in California as possible, Joe. Yeah. Um, but that's divided by congressional districts, and again, if you have Kasich in there, so Cruz's only hope really is to somehow drive out Kasich at least before June seventh. And you know, I have a scenario showing how Cruz could at least tie Trump in the districts and in, in the delegates. And and I want to know if you agree with this assessment or you think this is just kind of hot air. I think while the delegates matter and he does need to at least come close to Trump, I think mandates matter, and it, I think if he could win Pennsylvania, even though you know I have it shaded in red on the map we're going to post, that you can't really put them in there because the delegates themselves and most of the districts are unbound, so you don't know where they're going to where they're going to go. But if he wins California, wins Indiana, wins Wisconsin, wins Maryland, wins some of these northeastern states, maybe could siphon off some districts in New York. Um, he could come into the convention with a mandate. And, you know, I think we all know most of the party activists who are chosen in most of these states, not handpicked by the candidates, they will not go with Trump.
0: So- yeah. I would agree with that. I think at this point, Cruz is, I mean, like you said, Kasich being in this just. Mucks up everything. It just gums up the works completely. Because if what you have is one guy fighting to get to a convention in a broker convention, you don't know what their ultimate end game is. You can assume, you can guess, you can get insiders to tell you what they're thinking. But at the end of the day, you don't really know. I do believe mandates are important. And like you just said, I think. What the cruise camp has to do, if they if they plan on winning, is to just go ahead and try and get as many delegates as possible, strategically campaign and put their chips into baskets where they think they can get the most. California, like you said, is huge. Wisconsin is huge. You've got outliers like Pennsylvania that you just don't know what's going to happen. The same with a place like New Jersey. So you can't put too much in there. You obviously have to fight. But because you've got that Kasich wild card in there, it makes it a lot harder to invest extra chips, if you will. But, but I do believe mandates are important, especially if Trump is kept from the 1237 and you go to the convention where Cruz and Trump can make a case for themselves. That would be the interesting part to me, is if Cruz and, and Trump go there, neither having 1237, and you have to pull out some sort of unity ticket. Is it is it a trump Cruz ticket, or does it become a Cruz-Trump, or is it something totally different? Does each guy pull a second guy in and they go to an open ballot? I mean, so many questions. That are unanswered, but, but, but he's
1: got to get a mandate in yeah. my mind. I, I think yep. it's not just a matter of, oh, denying him the majority. Now, look, the rules are the rules. Yep. And, you know, you got to get a majority of <clears throat> delegates and whatever. But you do have to keep in mind the people, the voters, the, the mandate. And I think that's why it's important. In the scenario I lay out on this spreadsheet, we're going to post. I've posted different versions, you know, and I keep updating it as the you know delegates progress, the election progresses. But I think it is important that you have to win that mandate, and maybe then Cruz could go into the convention, and show the people, look, I won California, I won four yep. or five states on June seventh. I'm really winning. The tide has turned. It was just because of the circus, the first half where you had all the votes divided, but you see, you go up mano a mano. I am actually winning. We just came to the end of the rope. Look, had this election gone on further, I would continue winning. So you know, as long as he gets somewhere near the delegates and wins the second half of the map, the latter half, wins the fourth quarter of the game, you know, he has a mandate. But I do think Cruz needs to shake it up. Yep. And and you know, he wanted this one-on-one race. He's got to make it that way. You got to ignore Kasich. And like I said on on the radio show when I was filling in for Steve, that look, I think after. Tuesday night's elections in Arizona and Utah. The next major thing you have is Wisconsin two weeks later. But you got two weeks. The one after that is New York. He needs to go to New York, run ads in his home state, Hold town halls in his home state. Release a new agenda. Some of the stuff he's been doing, empowering the people. A bottom-up movement. People want to feel like they're a part of a movement, and that's why they're joining Trump. But he should make it a movement based on empowering the people on conservative populism. Letting them decide on refugee resettlement. Letting them decide on their transportation and education dollars. Letting them decide on you know the, the Supreme Court. And I want to get to that in a minute. Let them decide on societal issues, strip the courts of their power. You, know, I think some of his campaign speech has gotten old. He's got to mix it up. He's got to draw attention. And New York is where the media is all stationed. That's where I believe he needs to go, not just strategically winning. He has to get on the map. Um. Too much of what is going on, you look at the election returns, and a lot of Trump is, yeah, it's the misconception of who they think he is, and he's this false... Uh, narrative of him being this conservative outsider, conservative populist. But I think there's a certain generic 30% he's getting just on name ID. I've I've met so many people who are voting for Trump, not because they're angry, because frankly, they don't know enough about politics to be angry. (laughs) They're just voting for him because they vote. And that's all they hear. I mean, that, that is what it is. I, I encourage everyone to go back to the archives of the show we posted on Friday, the Steve Day Show, where I actually went through this, how it's all name ID. This is the same reason why, at the same time Trump is doing so well, all the conservative insurgents running for Congress are losing to the establishment. It's because it's name ID. They don't get any name ID in their local markets. Trump does on a national level. So Cruz needs to find a way to get into the news. Joe, all right. Next thing, next topic. I know we have just a couple minutes here. You know, you studied natural law under Robert Bork um, in a natural law law school. So you know, Supreme Court's a bit important thing for you. It's an important thing for me. My upcoming book on the judiciary, stolen sovereignty. Everyone keeps asking me, Daniel, do you think the Republicans are really for real this time? Are they going to hold the line and block Obama's nominee? And my answer is yes and no. I think at a leadership level, Mitch McConnell, this is one of the few areas where he genuinely wants to block it. But here's the problem. Mitch is now reaping what he has sown. He has run the entire party as a capitulation complex. And what I mean by the capitulation complex is Republicans look goofy. They look like they don't have principles. They look like they don't really believe it. So even if the leadership does believe it this time, but they, they've oriented this lack of party discipline for so long. So, you know, we have my um, show a couple couple weeks back when I did it solo without you when you were sick. I uh, I, I spoke about what I thought was the path to capitulation. And it wasn't going to start with McConnell because he is holding firm, but it's going to be your outliers, your Mark Kirks, your Susan Collins, and, and they're all saying they want to meet with – with Garland, your Jeff Flakes, there's, there's plenty of rhinos out there that are willing to do it. Then you have your outsiders, Roberto Gonzalez, um, Alberto Gonzalez, um, you know, Bush's attorney general, writing an op-ed saying, hey, this is a good guy. George Will is basically saying they should support him now, and You know, it's going to start with that, the drip, 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 the pressure is going to build because they're not engaging in the proper rhetorical jujitsu and saying, you guys have broken the judiciary. You guys have politicized the judiciary. You guys have politicized the nomination process. You will reap what you sow. Now that we have the Senate, you want to make the Supreme Court a political branch, which it has become a political branch of government? Then you know what? Let it be decided as all political branches are with the elections. That's what they should be saying, a little bit you're hearing here here and there from McConnell, but don't they look kind of goofy and unprincipled here <laughs> e- even when they're doing what we want? <laughs> uh,
0: of course they do because they've never done this before. <laughs> I mean, if if they were used to doing this, if they were used to holding the line, they would have some sort of strategy, they would look cohesive, and they would they would look like a unified team, and they don't. Like you said, you've got outliers who are always going to be out there, the Kirk, the Collinses, et cetera. But then you've got other people who just aren't even on talking points. And, and not that this should be a talking points battle, but... You know, they're they're saying they're doing one thing, but why are you doing that? And then they just go off and give some sort of I, I mean, it's a transparent answer that you can tell that they're just taking marching orders from McConnell, but they don't really know why. So they do look a little goofy here in, in, in all of this.
1: It's like, no, no, we're blocking. Right. We're blocking. And, and yep. they look like fools. Yep. And, and this is where George Will was hitting them on. But what George Will doesn't understand, and, and it's really what Republicans are failing to message. He's saying, we don't want to make this you know, branch of government that was supposed to be non-majoritarian and above politics into politics. Well, George, you might not have gotten the memo. It might be 50, 60 years too late. The court redefined the building block of civilization, a.k.a. marriage, from the bench. The courts are now deciding immigration. I'm going to have an article up soon at Conservative Review. Um, The courts are now deciding redistricting of every state. You know, what's worse than gerrymandering by legislators jerrymandering by unelected judges arbitrarily just breaking up maps in middle of elections. I mean, the courts are political. They're, they're a super legislature. George will literally said, we shouldn't make them like a super legislature. They are a super legislature. They shouldn't be, but they're like that. And we, we have to act accordingly. And I think Republicans have such a great case to be made, how the courts themselves need to be reformed. But again, this is the problem, and this is why we need to flush out the party from top down. Even when you get them to do what they want, my favorite word in the political English language, diffidence. They are diffident. They are lacking the confidence in their own views because they don't really believe it. Right. So they look foolish. They look like they're just kind of blocking just because, not because they really believe in anything. Um you know, you know a similar thing. I, I just, you know, I have an article up also last week on refugee resettlement. The House Judiciary Committee passed a pretty good bill. Not what I wanted exactly, but reducing the number of refugees. And Steve King had an amendment to allow states and localities to vote on resettlement. It's one of the um, propositions I put out in my book, Stolen Sovereignty. I had to uh, uh, give back the sovereignty to, to states and, and local governments on, on societal questions. Certainly, refugee resettlement is a big societal question. But the, the, they're not really pushing it bicamerally. It's just t- kind of, you know, make conservatives happy. They're not messaging and taking that bill back to every member to their district during the spring recess and saying, my Democrat opponents don't want the people to decide. I think the people should decide the orientation of their neighborhood. And instead of having social transformation without representation, let the people decide. You don't hear it. Even when they pass a good bill, it's just like they throw it away like they did with – um. That audit the Fed thing—it was just a favor to Rand Paul. Okay, here's your vote. Done with it. They don't message it. They don't run ads on it. They don't run it by camera and, and and go on all the Sunday shows and and speak with confidence and and passion about it. Because if you don't believe in something, you can't really fight for it. Even if you're, you know, even when they fight, it's just to get conservatives off their backs. And let's face it, it's just because the <laughs> the brewing revolution in the party. Mitch McConnell knows if they cave on this issue they are done. There is right. no party left.
0: Yep. I mean like you said in 1987 the judiciary became a political entity. Uh there's ebbs and flows and in ebbs and tides that go through politics over decades and in and generations and whatnot. In and 1987 was a, was the breaking point when they you know didn't confirm Robert Bork. And from that period the Republicans have to realize, like you said, that this is a political beast at this point, and so they have to play it in the political arena. If they want to reform the courts and the judiciary, that's fine, and it needs to happen. But until that reality becomes true, then they have to play by the rules that the Democrats set. Like you said in, in your piece, you know, the Democrats made the bad, now they have to lie in it. So let them do that, N- you know, no no confirmation here, no votes, nothing, and let's wait till the next president. And, and sure, could it be somebody worse? Could it, it? It it is. But if you want to start working on principle, that's the principle you have to start from.
1: Exactly. And I think to tie in both the opportunity on the presidential election and the Supreme Court, I think you know my two cents. I don't know if they listen to me, but if I were giving them advice, I would say Ted Cruz needs to seize this issue and go out more front and center and talk about this social transformation without representation. Talk about not just Garland or Obama's nominee, but but... But in general, the threat of the courts to democracy, like I said, marriage, immigration decisions, the future membership of our public, the election decisions, they're all decided by the courts. They're more important than the Congress now. In some ways, they're more important than the president. I mean, they shouldn't be, and they don't have that power. The Constitution never mandated such power or vested them with such power. But if they're going to have that power, if they're going to be treated like an electoral office, then— it is very simple to get up there and say, "Then you know what? Let the people decide in the next election." Simple messaging. Time will tell whether Republicans cave on this or not. But you know, we'll we'll delve through this later this week. Um, you know, look out for our Wednesday Thursday podcast. We're gonna uh, release another one dissecting the Arizona and Utah uh, results, and I think by then we will have a better sense of where things are headed. But until then. Buckle up. Hold on to your seats. This is going to be a wild ride through the rest of this election. Thanks for listening, folks. This is The Conservative Congress.